The sermon scripture for this morning comes from Paul's letters to the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi. And as I hope you have become accustomed to me doing, I would like to provide some context behind the letter before I read part of it this morning so we can establish that baseline of common knowledge. So before I read from Philippians chapter 3, here's what I would like for everyone to be aware of this morning. The words that we will hear this morning are written by a man who was complicit in murder. A man who stood by, holding the robes of others who needed more mobility to hurl stones to kill someone else. These words are written by a man who fervently sought out and imprisoned people who thought differently than he did, who believed differently than he did. And he did this knowing that they would face gruesome punishments and imprisonment and executions. By his own admission, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man who terrorized both men and women to the point of death by binding them and putting them in prison. So fanatical was this man in his beliefs, opinions, and worldview that he claimed to actually be dissatisfied with his inability to capture and kill more people. So he applied to the authorities for permission to go to other cities, round up even more people, and bring them back bound and chained to stand trial. And so ill-informed was his conscience that he thought everything he did was in service to God. His actions were pleasing to the Lord. I say all of this because as we hear the scripture this morning, and when I talk about all that this man was, I want you to be cognizant that Jesus Christ is in the business of taking what was and transforming it into what will By all accounts, we can look at the life that Saul was living. And with a fair degree of certainty, we can say that he was a bigot. A prejudiced person who was intent on purifying his area of the world. His focus was set completely inward. Concerned only with maintaining the status quo of his own limited worldview to the point of imprisoning and murdering anyone who he perceived as a threat to his way of life. He was a person that exuded fear and used it to terrorize the people he was persecuting as well as bolster the cause amongst his own people, thereby justifying his acts of violence and oppression. This is who Saul was, but it is not who Christ would have him be. After an encounter with the living Christ that ended with what has been described as scales falling from his eyes, Saul, who is also called Paul, went on to become one of the most important figures of the apostolic age, starting many churches in Asia and Europe and even composing about a third of the New Testament. Eighteen, eight to 13 of those books and letters, somewhere in there. We'll, we'll talk about it later. But of the 27, a full third. 
And as we read from one of those books, one of those letters this morning, we also take into account not only the brokenness of the author, but the brokenness of the people he was writing to. Peter Edmonds, a Roman Catholic scholar, reminds us that these letters were a substitute for a personal visit or for the visit of one of Paul's assistants like Timothy or Titus. And these visits were needed to deal with problems that inevitably come up in the early church in Philippi and elsewhere. They were young in their Christian commitment and they needed help and even warnings about potential dangers that they ran, uh, infidelity and sinfulness, all of this stuff that comes with enthusiasm, energy in their new faith. And we see examples of some of these dangers in Paul's letter. In the second chapter, we note that the believers in Philippi were of opposing minds. He tells them to be of one mind, so we assume that they were of opposing minds. They were self-serving. They were conceited, narcissistic, argumentative, and in danger of becoming warped and crooked. And in chapter 4, we learn that much of this arose from anxiety. Do not be anxious, he tells them. It arose from not only anxiety, but also an inability to focus on things that were true, noble, right, admirable, and founded in love. So with all of that as our baseline of common knowledge, hear now the words of the apostle as he ministers to this congregation from a prison cell, encouraging them to move from what was and is into what will be. He says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For there are many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And I've often told you of them. And now I tell you, even with tears, their end is their destruction. Their God is the belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation so that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. In these few short verses, Peter, Paul is essentially saying, hey, look at me. I have lived a life of selfish, inward, personal, and earthly ambition, and it's not what you think it is. It doesn't end how you think it's going to end, because everything about it is contrary to the sacrificial example of Jesus Christ. And I've often told you about this. And I weep even now. For the people I still know. And the people I still love. Who are caught up in a culture. That promotes and perpetuates fear. Bigotry. And selfishness. So keep your mind and your heart turned towards heaven. Because it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ returns, he will transform all that was and is into what will be. Now, 
Some people know that I was solo parenting for the first half of this past week. The Wednesday night communion crew really knows it. But Ellen was on a work trip to New York City. So I had the boys all to myself. And you have seen them. Well, on Monday evening, we hopped in the car to do a Kroger run to get some frozen pizza because when Mama's not home, I'm not cooking. And as we were turning into the Ryle Hill Kroger, you can, if you, you imagine it, it's got the Chick-fil-A, the dollar store, the gas, all of it's right there. We're turning into the Ryle Hill Kroger. I hear Cooper from the way back of the van mumble offhand. Those look like friends from church. So, of course, I'm checking my mirrors, you know, was my time straight, you know, whatever. I'm checking the mirrors. I'm looking around. I'm looking out the windows. I'm wondering which of you lovely people he has noticed as we turned into the parking lot. But I don't see anybody. I see only other cars and a few people standing by the gas station panhandling for money. So I parked the car. I got the kids out. I was putting Peter in the cart. And I asked Cooper, who did you see from church? And he pointed And he pointed right at what I could clearly see now is a mother with her two children standing at the edge of the gas station holding a sign asking for food and gas money. And it was in that moment that scales fell from my eyes and I realized that my son, and we've been talking about this, the innocence and the faith of children. I realized that my son was referring to people in need as friends from church. In my desire to fill earthly needs, to fill our bellies with pizza, to get home quickly and get the kids to bed so that I could do what was easy, so that I could have some downtime, so I could do what was best for me because after all, I had worked all day and through Peter's nap, I had a sermon to preach on Sunday. I had five meetings to attend this week. I, me, mine, and no one else. Because of all that, I had passively overlooked, omitted, And judge these faceless bodies as unworthy of my time and energy. They were not me or mine. So they were relegated to simply being other. And I had subconsciously chosen to deny them their humanity. A sin of omission. And sins of omission are much easier to hide and ignore. And because of such they are far more dangerous and detrimental to our spiritual growth. So thanks be to God that there was a small voice coming from the back of the van speaking up so that I, like Saul, could have my eyes opened to a new reality. A reality where the living Christ takes what was and transforms it into what will be. These were friends from church. Daddy helps people. That's what I do what I tell my children that I do. So, of course, we made our way from the parking lot down towards the gas station. And as we walked, my big, stupid adult brain begins to process all of this information. Friends from church. Where did this phrase come from? Why would he say that? 
And I remember only a handful of moments when Cooper would have been present when I was speaking to or ministering to people in need. And I would placate to him. He would be present. He would watch. He would listen. He would say, Daddy, who's that guy? And just offhand, I'm not explaining that. I'm not bringing you into all this. Cooper, those are friends from church. Truly. There was no pastoral intentionality on my part about how my child came to this understanding and use of terminology. But here we were. Walking down with a busted shopping cart to speak with these unknown friends from church. I was surprised to learn that this family of three spoke very little English. Of the two children, a daughter about 12 years old did most of the interpretation while her younger brother played in the bushes. It took me a few minutes to figure out what they needed and discern that they were from Romania and were speaking French. They were making their way down the East Coast to stay with friends or family members in Florida. And so I asked if they wanted to walk inside with us and purchase some gift cards for gas, and I would gladly buy them some food as well. But the mother declined to come with me and insisted that her daughter go through the store with me instead. She was apparently uncomfortable leaving the area around their van because she also had an even younger daughter who was in the van sleeping inside of it. I wasn't so sure about this plan, but by now I'd offered to help. So here I am with my own two kids, acting like they normally are, getting ready to walk into a Kroger to purchase a few gift cards for a 12-year-old Romanian girl who barely speaks English so that her and her mother and now two younger siblings have enough gas money to go to Florida. And again, as the four of us are making our way back up the hill from the bottom of the parking lot to the top, my big stupid adult brain is processing, organizing, and methodically trying to think through all that is happening here. Am I contributing to sex trafficking? Are these people in danger? Are they here legally? Am I going to get arrested Am I in danger? Are my kids in danger? I know I'm about to be on these security cameras in Kroger. Should I call the police? And as we walk through the doors, I look at my children and they're watching this girl. And they're watching me. I'm committed. Cooper has claimed these people. They are our friends from church. So I can't just cut it off here. I can't call the police on the same people that Cooper has clearly marked as his own. It's my job to help people. So under the watchful eyes of the security cameras, I extend the full generosity and grace of this congregation through the pastor's discretionary fund that you keep well supplied. And I purchased enough gas cards to hopefully get them to Florida and then some. But with all that earlier stuff still rolling around in my head, I wasn't just going to pass this off and be on my way. I had to make sure they were going to pack it up. I did not want those kids to be standing outside of any more gas stations. I was going to speak to their mother again. I was going to see what the deal was. I was going to look inside that van. So with the kids in the cart, the gift cards in hand, and the daughter beside us, we walked back down the hill. And this is all thinking time. 
So please know that through all of this, I'm battling against my own apprehensions, my own fears and misgivings, my own racism, my own xenophobia and fear of the other. I mean, it has become part of our communal psyche to be cautious around foreigners, right? So we're coming up on the van and I'm wondering, will it be filled with guns or drugs or something far worse. And so out of fear, I parked the cart with my own children about 20 feet away behind another car out of traffic. And I'm walking up on the van like a cop during a traffic stop because I don't know what I'm going to find. The daughter runs ahead and she rips open the, the doors of the van and she reveals her mother, her brother, the younger sister, a three-month-old infant, And an older brother who may have been 16, 17 years old. And so now there's not just three or four, but six friends from church traveling to Florida. And five of them are children. There are car seats and clothes packed in so tightly. I don't know how they all fit in there. But I can't see any of the other details because I was focused so intently on their faces As the relief and joy revealed itself as the daughter explained that they would have enough to get where they were going. And that's all I could that's all I could see. I'd like to stand here and tell you that I was able to tell them really beautiful and pastoral things. I'd like to say that I gathered them all together and I prayed for them. I'd like to say that I held that three-month-old baby or that I even brought my own children over to meet this migrant family. But they just kept saying, thank you, thank you, God bless you. And I just wanted to rebut all of it and say, no, this is God blessing you. But all I could muster was this meek and shallow. You're welcome. We went inside, we brought our pizza, we went through the same checkout line again. The cashier didn't recognize us. She even gave the kids a whole other string of those Kroger stickers. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And we went home, we had dinner, put the kids to bed, and then I lay awake for about another five or six hours. I did not sleep well this week. Friends from church. With three simple words... My five-year-old son brought the full gospel into focus. Like sunlight through a magnifying glass, his words are now burned on my heart. Because the Christ that lives and moves in him recognized that same Christ in this migrant family. And through that recognition came a realization that we are far more connected than we care to think about sometimes. Friends from church. With those three words, my son claimed this family and said, they are like me. They too are members of the family of God and we are accountable for them. They belong to us. This mother and her five children from Romania, who we will probably never see again, they are our friends. And more than that, they are our friends from church. They belong to God. And they belong to us. And now having played even a small part in the story of their lives, we, you, the church, 
belong to them. And somewhere deep down, I knew this. And I was fully prepared to ignore it. A sin of omission. After all, I had every right to be overwhelmed with parenting, work, and meal preparation for my family, my kids. There are enough issues in my house. I don't have the time, energy, or whatever to deal with people all the time. It's not safe, probably. These people might be a threat. I might be in danger. This may not be legal. I'm a pastor. Aren't there rules to follow? I should have called the police. I should have had that woman arrested for doing that to her children. I thought those things. I was a person who thought those things. And I was almost a person who acted on them. But that is not who Christ would have me be. And I am thankful that I had a child nearby to remind me of that and grateful for a Savior who is well-practiced in transformation. And so in conclusion, I'm going to ask you to use some of your small group time, your Bible study time, or just a few minutes at the dinner table this week to think about and discuss what it means to belong. I'm asking you to do this because I believe that there is something holy to be gained from listening to and emulating Paul. I believe that there is grace to be found when we reflect on how we, like the Philippians, have opposing minds and how we can be self-serving, conceited, narcissistic, argumentative, and might also be in danger of becoming warped and crooked. I believe the transformation is still possible even though we live in an anxious time and we suffer a similar inability to focus on things that are true, things that are noble, right, admirable, and founded in love. And I believe that something, something will change for the better once we identify the parts of our culture that promote and perpetuate fear, bigotry, and selfishness. I'm asking you to think about belonging because there are divisive voices and actions that overwhelm our senses on an almost hourly basis. There's an election coming up after all. Did you know? And the us versus them rhetoric is being used to justify unspeakable violence. There are some people, mostly male, identified by their white nationalist views who have not yet had a transformative encounter with the living Christ. And they are sending out bombs. They are shooting up grocery stores and synagogues. Because their focus was and is completely inward. They're concerned only with maintaining the status quo of their own limited worldview to the point of bombing and shooting anyone that they perceive is a threat to their way of life. 
They are people that exude fear and use it to terrorize vulnerable communities as well as bolster the cause among their own people, justifying their acts of violence and oppression. And those are just the news headlines from this week. Right now, there are countless people wandering through an unfamiliar land in desperate need of safety, shelter, and food. There are people whose lives are being threatened through terrorism, war, and a great many other injustices. And these aren't just the people in Pittsburgh or Louisville. These aren't just people walking in a caravan through Mexico. And these aren't just the people taking sanctuary in our churches. They are also the sisters and the brothers that we pass by every day. The people we omit from our lives and relegate to being a dehumanized other. And it is because of all that that I'm asking you to think about belonging. Because I believe that we are connected to one another and accountable to one another. I believe that as children of God, we belong to God. And as siblings together in the kingdom, so did their kin, kingdom, that we also belong to each other. And I believe that if we keep our children close, and if we keep our minds and our hearts turned toward heaven, that Jesus will take all that we are and transform us into people who will hear that small voice whispering. Those look like friends from 